I'm sure everyone noticed our particularly lengthy reading from the uh, book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. That's because we're actually starting today a summer series on the books of Samuel, which are one book in the, in the Hebrew Bible, 1 and 2 Samuel. And today's passage is the moment where Israel asks for a king. And this is a real turning point for Israel because after Moses and Joshua, Joshua brings them into the land, they have a period of about 300 years plus where they had what we now call judges. It's not at all we think of as a judge. It was basically rulers that were raised up on an ad hoc basis. A need would come up, a ruler would rise, would sort of govern things for a while, and then another ruler would come up later on when another problem arose. The period of the judges. And this is the big transition, a hinge to the period of the kings. Like we think of kings, a fixed monarchy. One person succeeds another over time. So at this big hinge, that's also about another 300 years. So we're at this great hinge moment. Now, with the judges, we're also seeing the last of them. There are 15 judges, and some of them are eternally memorable, such as Othniel, Ehud, and Shagmar, of course. I, you know, it's funny, I don't remember the last baptism we had with any of those names. But we have others that are, are great heroes of the faith. Deborah, Gideon, uh, Samson, and Eli and Samuel. Samuel, we reach today, is actually the last of the, uh, the, last of the judges. So why does Israel ask for a king? After all, God had taken care of them for this 300-year period. Why do they ask for a king? And we don't have to imagine. They tell us they wanted to be like the other nations. That's what other people did. That's what people who really thought about these and things were successful. That's what they did. They wanted to be like the other nations. So our focus today is going to be on two different lessons from their decision to choose a king. The first is a powerful word of hope. God can redeem our worst mistakes. It's an incredible word of hope. God can redeem our worst mistakes. See, God's wisdom and power are infinitely greater than our folly and weakness. Every day of the week. And second, a very important reminder. What the receiving the call from God sets us apart forever. We're different forever. We're never the same. Once we receive God's call, we are changed. We have a different yardstick in our life. We can never be like the other nations. We're forever different. So those two points are our word of hope, God can redeem our worst mistakes. And also that important reminder, God's call sets us apart. We'll never be the same again. We will never be like those who have not received that call. So let's take a closer look at today's passage. In some ways, you know, it's not a surprise, in some ways, that Israel asked for a king because the Torah, the law of Moses, specifically mentioned what to do when that, when that happened. In the book of Deuteronomy, we're told, so it dealt with this eventuality, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. Fair enough. So clearly this was foreseen as a, a possibility, an eventuality in the law of Moses, even though it hadn't been used for 300 years. So obviously there's a negative tone to the passage. Why is this a problem? Well, first of all, we have Samuel, who frankly is being forced into early retirement. Remember, it says you're old, and it says, you know, he gets early retirement. And God comforts him saying, you got early retirement, I got fired. Look at the words. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. So the reason this passage is somber, this is not just choosing one way of government to another. God was their king, and that wasn't good enough. 
They needed something more like other people. That's the somber tone. He said, it's not you, Samuel, who's hurt. It's not you. It's me they've rejected. I've been their king, and they don't want me to be their king anymore. In some ways, it's a faint foreshadowing what happens on Good Friday. Remember when Pilate brings out Jesus before the crowd, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? Do you remember what they answered? We have no king but Caesar. So it's sort of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen on that day. Now, Samuel is called prophet for a reason. Uh, his predictions all come true. And what we have here is the first king we're going to have anointed, we won't talk about in this series, is Saul, who's a miserable failure. And uh, I mean, really a miserable failure. Uh, what happens here, he's actually deposed. God sets him aside. He dies in a battle that they lost. Okay, they're actually after the battle. So that didn't work out too well. Then we had David and Solomon, which is a moment of some decades of glory. But even then, we have things that go desperately wrong. With David, we actually have an inter-family war. David has to flee his own capital because his son, Absalom, chases him out. And then Solomon, the man who built the temple in Jerusalem, introduces idolatry because he had foreign wives and they wanted to be able to practice their faith around town. Okay. Then we have a division of the king, after, after, a division of the kingdom into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. Uh, we have, with few exceptions, it's, it's normally petty and evil rule. The first kingdom is defeated. The Assyrians take it, and it's exile for everyone. That's in 722 B.C. And then the Babylonians destroy the temple and take Judah into exile in 586. So, where is a word of hope in all of this? The first lesson is God, again, can redeem our mistakes. You see, one thing people forget about the enemy, and he's a very real enemy, is his power is completely negative. He can't do anything positive. He can take things and destroy. He has the power to destroy. It's like people who can, you know, think like the Nazis. They left nothing good. They could destroy beautiful things. They left, like ISIS, nothing good. All they can do is the power to destroy. All he can do is twist things. He can't actually do anything. God actually is the opposite. God not only can do things, but he can even, being God, take evil and turn it to good. He can use what was intended for evil for good. It's amazing. God can do this. It's part of being God. Think of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph. As Joseph, his, his brothers, this was not a loving, this was not the, uh, the Waltons or something. This is not a loving family. He's sold by his, his, fa his brothers into Egypt. He's, and, and later on, they catch up with him. He, they said everything is forgiven, but they didn't believe it. They thought he was just waiting until dad died. And then he would take care. He loved his dad. Well, when dad dies, you can imagine they're right in the room immediately and saying, we're so sorry. And he said, look, as for me, he said, look, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's no question his brothers did a horrible thing. They even considered killing him. The debate was kill him, sell him into slavery. Mm, tough choice. Okay, but they, okay, but what, they, their brothers, but they did something evil, but God used it for good. Israel would not have been saved without Joseph going forward to pave the way. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Actually, the book of Psalms talk, talks about this wonderfully in Psalm 18. It says, with the kind you show yourself, speaking to God, with the kind you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. I love that. With the crooked, you, so, you show yourself shrewd. 
The supreme example of this, of course, is the cross. We sometimes forget the cross which changed the universe, which restored salvation. The people who crucified Jesus were not trying to save the universe. Satan was, they were doing the exact opposite. They committed the, the most evil, horrific deed ever done as we killed some who brought nothing but good for us. And somehow he took, not despite the cross, using the cross, the cross was the actual means he used to bring salvation and grace. That's what God can do. Not if he succeeds despite these things, he can actually use them to bring good. So what the story happens is actually what's going to the whole story from a Christian view of Samuel is this. It's an incredible story of hope. Israel rejects God as their king because they want a human king. One of those kings will be David. What God does instead of rejecting them is he gives them both in Jesus, the son of David. Jesus is the son of David and the son of God. So he uses their saying no to him to rule over them personally as both God and man and the Lord Jesus Christ. God took their no and made it a yes beyond anything people could have expected. The, the supreme king that could ever be was based on their no. They said no so God could say yes. Now this is a personal word of hope for us as well. So often I think a lot of us in our lives saying, I've done stupid things, I have a life filled with stupid decisions that are irredeemable. It's lost. These are lost years, like Joel talks about the years of the locusts. They're lost. That's not true. God can redeem our mistakes. He can actually not just get past them, he can actually make us different and better for them when they're given into his transforming hands. Remember when Naaman was cured as a, as a leper, remember in the Old Testament as a leper, it doesn't say he was just cured, it says he wasn't, his skin wasn't just clean, it was clean like a baby. God can take what's bad and turn it to good. We have a beautiful example in Peter. Remember, Peter was the one, I, I love this, he must have been popular with the other apostles, on the night before the Lord dies, he says, I can't really vouch for these guys, but I'll be there with you even if they run away. Of course, we find out that isn't true. He, uh, you know, he denies Christ three times. Now, after the Lord's resurrection, what happens? The Lord comes to Peter, remember, and he comes with him and says, Do you love me more than these? Again, he said, Well, I love you, Lord. He asks him three times. And it's a challenge, but it's more than that. It means that his ministry as pastor, the one to love the sheep, is rooted in this failure. It's because he faced and knew what real forgiveness was. He failed, he botched it up, he messed it up, but God pulled it out. That's why he could be a pastor. He would never judge, saying, oh, I don't know about the others. He would never do that again. He knew because he'd experienced grace. Now, we might wonder about the Apostle Paul. Why is he the Apostle of grace? Well, he'll tell you. He said, if I can be saved, anybody can be saved. He said, I, there are people dead because of me. Christians dead because I was. He was there at Stephen's, Stephen's martyrdom. He arrested people. He stole their goods. He, he said, what hope could there be? But despite that, God made him more. He said, a witness to grace. You know, I meant it for evil. God meant it for good. This is why he's the apostle of grace. He knew it. A lifetime of bad choices does not put us beyond grace. The opposite. God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. So the enemy's lie to you is because of the mistakes we've made, it's hopeless, it's over. You should, if we could have started, that's nonsense, it's a lie. We can always turn around, God will take what we have done and he will redeem it. More than go past it, he will redeem it and make it something of beauty. 
Second lesson is God's call sets us apart, like Israel. Remember, we're told in 1 Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The trouble with being called by God, the Jews have often joked through the centuries, it's tough to be God's chosen people. Sometimes they say, maybe he could have chosen someone else, given the history. But it's, the fact is, we have a different yardstick. Remember what God says to Israel. He says, I'm the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt uh, to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I'm holy. Holy means godly, set apart for God. Which Israel was told, that's the call. If you're called to, you know, to, to me, that makes you holy. You'll never again be the same. You shall be holy because I'm holy. We're told in the Sermon on the Mount by the Lord Jesus, you will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Holiness, perfection. This is our call. We can never again be just like everyone else. Now, sometimes we feel the same temptation, I'm sure, that Israel did. Why can't we be like everyone else? A good, a good example now is in our own times. We're having very serious issues about things we never thought of would have been discussed that have come before us in our society. Abortion. We have euthanasia. You know, what is the proper use of our sexuality? These are things that are being profoundly questioned in the society we live in. How do we actually, how do we make decisions? These are important things. How do we make decisions about important issues in our lives? Well, in Christianity, what we've done in the faith, I'll tell you our, our special, our Anglican approach sort of summarizes it. We had a great theologian in our tradition called Richard Hooker. And he said what we do is, remember, we are proudly a church of the reform. We believe in scripture alone, that everything necessary for salvation is in the Holy Scripture. We swear an oath to it every year. So he said, we, tr- we look to Holy Scripture. But how do we know what Holy Scripture means? He said, there are two other points. First of all, you look at how has the church read that scripture together over the centuries. The church reading scripture together, which we call the, the tradition. But also he talked about right reason. This has often been misunderstood. He didn't mean that we just use our independent judgment. He said when we're interpreting scripture, how, what principles do we use? For example, the scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. Right? We, how do we know a verse or something? We look at in the context of other verses and things to find out what it means. So the ultimate goal for us is in deciding a moral issue. God is the one who decides. Our only goal is to find out what that decision is. God is the decider. Our goal is to find out the decision by examining the scriptures in the light of how the church has read them in the light of right reason. Now, understandably, the world around us is no longer Christian. We are sadly entering into a very post-Christian age. Um, And so people do not share these same views. Understandably, they don't share the same views. So their ultimate goal in dealing with moral issues is they want to do the right thing. They're well-hearted, well-intended people. They want to do the right thing. So how do you do that? Well, it can't be scripture. That's, not, uh, that's divisive and that's something not held. So what we do in the world is we weigh arguments. We look at all the arguments, all the best information we have from different sources and weigh it together and come up with our best personal judgment of what appears to us to be good and right. Our best personal judgment. Now, many Christians are tempted to say, well, can't we wed the best of both? Can't we put together our traditional Christian approach of deciding these kind of issues, like the nations, unlike the nations, with what the nations do, the best of what they bring? And they propose um, an approach somewhat like this, a a three-pronged approach. First of all, we examine the scripture, absolutely. These are Christians speaking. Why don't we examine the scripture? 
Secondly, we need to weigh arguments pro and con from other sources as well. And then we need to come to a conclusion. We need to decide what seems to us to be the right thing. Now, I wonder, is that a really, is that progress or not? But have you ever had something like, when you hear a story or something, you think, I've heard this before? I don't know where, but I've heard that before. Duh, I've heard that story. I know it, I know it, I can't place it. Duh, it's the Garden of Eden. This is the hermeneutic of the Garden of Eden. Let's look at the story of the temptation in Genesis 3. Satan says to the woman, the serpent, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you may not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay. Now it says, for God, knows, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight in the, to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. Let's take that apart. Remember we said there's a three-prong idea. The first element is, let's look at the scriptures. Well, that's exactly what Satan invites her to do. What did God actually say? Did God actually say... You shall, eat of, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Are you sure that's the right historical and cultural context? Or are you really understanding this right? And she says, oh, no, not exactly. He actually said just one tree, but we won't haggle. Okay, so we, we go there. The second element is we weigh the pros and cons. The serpent said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There are some other opinions we take into account. God didn't talk about this, but those are reasonable things to consider. So finally, what do we do? We make a judgment based, we make a decision based on our own best judgment. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. So basically she said, look, I need to be affirmed and validated. Hand me the apple. Okay, um, so, so uh, basically what we have here is Again, if we try, we'd say, we'd like to, we want to keep what we are as Christians, we want to maintain scripture and things, but somehow, isn't there some way we can be like the nations too? Can't we take the same process, sort of meld the two together? No, it's not possible. Why? Because you're looking at different things. For a Christian, God makes the decision. We simply seek to find what that decision is. In the world, we make the decision. And the one who makes the decision is God, and there can only be one God. To put oneself in that place is to become a false god. You know, Satan, the best lies are half-truths. And Satan has got these down cold. So he says, for example, he assured Eve, oh, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Like God. Image and likeness of God, like God. You'd be an image, but a false image. You see, in the Old Testament, there are Hebrew words, Greek, most people know it, an icon is an image, but also the word idol. There are two different Greek words that both mean image. One is like a true image, like the word made in the image of likeness of God, is an icon is a Greek word for that. And the other, eidolon, you know, meaning an idol, a false god. So it's true that you'll be like God, you just won't be an icon, you'll be an idol. So he spoke the truth, but oh, not the half of it. It's true, if we make the decision, it's true, we will be like God, but we will be a rival, there's only one God. We'll be a false god. And it's also true we'll know good and evil, but we'll have a misunderstanding. We'll have our own good and evil, not the real thing, not objective good and evil. We'll make up our own version. It won't be the real thing. So let's put it this way. For Christians, even though we want to be like the nations, God's word can never simply be one consideration among others. You know, the word obedience comes from 
God's word is something we obey, not just listen to obey. The word obedience in Latin comes from to listen closely, to really listen, to listen up. It's sort of like when you, uh, when you say to your kids, did you hear me on something? Did you really hear me? That's what obedience means, to really hear. God's word is not simply listened to and considered, it is obeyed. We only meet God when we come to his word with a posture of obedience. We don't judge God's word. God's word judges us. We don't make the decision. We seek God's decision. To take any other position is to make Eve's mistake. To make Adam's mistake is to put ourselves as a rival God, our own judge of good and evil. Now again, this attitude is completely foreign to the world we live in. You know, we're in a consumer culture. We're told everything we do in our lives that we're supreme. You know, we're always asked for, you know, know, thumbs up, thumbs down, how many stars on Amazon. You know, we are the measure of all things. Is this meeting my needs? What do I think? We are the measure of all things. The point of reference in our society is completely us. We as an individual, self-actualization, we are the ultimate point of reference in our lives. We try to be nice to others, but fundamentally our life is about me. A Christian will be radically different. The ultimate point of reference will always be God. Those are irreconcilable. It will always be an attitude out of step with the nations. It will lead to hostility or even worse. So to conclude today, Israel decides to choose an earthly king. But God, showing he's God, takes a decision to reject him and turns it into supreme acceptance. He becomes their king as they wanted a a king that was human. They got a king both human and divine. David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, son of David, son of God. And this is our lesson to us in our own lives. There is not any mistake we've made, not a lifetime of mistakes that God cannot redeem. Ask Paul, ask Peter. We never... I love the saying, the old saying goes, God draws straight with crooked lines. God can use our mistakes for our good and his glory. And second, God has set us apart. You know, the, the, word, the Greek word for church means the ones called out. Ekklesia means the ones who are actually called out. They come over here, called out. When we receive the call of God, we are fundamentally different. We're never the same again. We're not like the other nation. So in these times, when people will understand us less and less, when we're tempted to become like the nations... We have to always remember the words of God to Israel and the words of God to us. You shall be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen.